Welcome. We're glad y'all are here. Uh, we are moving right through our books of the Old Testament, and we are in our last book of wisdom literature, Song of Solomon. So I hope everyone's ready. I wasn't sure if it was going to be a, a high attendance evening or a low attendance evening, but it appears to be a normal attendance evening, so, so that's great. Um, we, we are going to be in Song of Solomon tonight, and I did want to let y'all know, any of y'all who are parents of fifth and sixth graders, they're in Song of Solomon as well tonight, but Ben is not giving your kids the birds and the bees talk. That's y'all's job. So they'll be talking about the beauty of marriage and, and how it's good when it's healthy, and probably not much more than that. And next week, they're actually having a pizza party. They're actually going to do that next week. So it's like, what should we do for the second week? And we're like, let's just do a pizza party. That's fine. So fifth and sixth graders, it is what it is. So um, y'all can follow up with that however you like. Uh, but we will be in Song of Solomon tonight. So let's go ahead and pray, and we'll get to it. Lord, we love you very much. I'm thankful for uh, just the week in and week out with all the craziness and with all the extracurricular activities and all the different directions that all of us go every day, that on Wednesdays we can come in here and we can open the word and we can continue to work through it and, uh, and to hear from our God about so many things that we really need wisdom on. Um, tonight, as we go through Song of Solomon, I pray that you would give us wisdom as that's your intention. Uh, we love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There are a number of different approaches to interpreting Song of Solomon. There are um, a, a lot of pastors who kind of like the shock jock approach. They love Song of Solomon because they can just really run with it in a crazy direction and, and you know, use language that's real um, bright and crazy and, and we're just going to get right to it. And, and, and the book does sort of get right to the point. But um, I hope we can be real sober as we approach this. My... My prayer and my thought as I was preparing this is that um, we engage things in Scripture that can actually change people. And if people are changed, generations can be changed. And if generations are changed, you know, the world can be changed. And that may sound very pie-in-the-sky approach to Song of Solomon of all books, but when it comes to sexuality, we're not good at getting that right. And so I'm really encouraged at what we're getting to engage tonight in the text because, um, uncomfortable as it may be, um, it's God's wisdom for something that's very difficult to, to get right. So um, the title tonight is um, Lots of Awkward, Lots of Wisdom. That's what we're going with. Lots of awkward, but lots of wisdom from our Lord in this. We're going to consider a few of the different approaches that... Um, some have taken uh, to Song of Solomon. I'll probably have less questions tonight than I normally do because no one will answer them. So um, if you're wondering why it's like that as we're going through, that's why. Um, and if you have something you'd like to suggest in the middle, feel free to raise your hand and we will allow you to share whatever you feel led to share. Um, so there's a, a handful of different interpre interpretations and approaches to Song of Solomon. Uh, we'll consider a few of them, but what I want us to start with is in general, Song of Solomon is a book of wisdom for married people. It's a book of wisdom for married people. The relationship that we see in Song of Solomon is the relationship of, the, of two, a shepherdess and a shepherd, who are preparing for marriage, and then they get married, and then there's consummation. So, just real brief up front, Song of Solomon is a book of wisdom for married people. And I, I kind of alluded to it, but I feel like we're studying this book in a very unique period of, of history. Um, in 1997, uh, Mark Dever preached a sermon on Song of Solomon where he suggested 
that if the world lasts long enough for more history books to be written, so he's saying, this was 1997, he's saying if, if Jesus doesn't come back and the world lasts long enough and people write more history books like the ones we have, according to what's happened previous, he said, um, uh, the most important revolution of the 20th century, the 1900s, will not be considered to have been a revolution that was won with tanks and torpedoes, bullets, and bombs. Almost certainly it will be the sexual revolution because things changed so much in the 1900s. So, he explains that in the second half of the 20th century, pleasure was separated from responsibility in large part. And the Western world was responsible for a lot of it. And it just kind of spread like wildfire. Western society approached sex and everything that goes with it in a way that legitimizes bending every part of our lives around serving ourselves. And he makes the comment about boundaries. And he says boundaries that once seemed fixed are now less secure. And I would add to that, in some places, those boundaries are almost invisible. I mean, as far as things that were the norm for, say, our grandparents. So, um, just to start off, this is one of the few questions that I'd like to discuss. What are some of the problems, and, and I want to address these up front so that we have our eyes open as we enter the text. What we're going to have to consider tonight is ultimately very positive. Christians are notorious for approaching anything having to do with sexuality. I'm going to keep the roof here? Good grief. We are on Song of Solomon. You never know. Um, <laughs> Um, Christians are notorious for approaching things regarding sexuality in very negative terms, very ho-hum terms, and the book is very, very positive. So though I'm starting out with a question about some of the problems that go along with a negative view on sexuality, I'm starting there because I'm wanting to take us to that positive view that the Bible offers. So our first question is, what are some problems that plague our society that are directly or indirectly related to sexual freedom, or we'll just call it perversity. Some of those boundaries that are no longer really boundaries. What are some of the problems that we see in our society? Yeah, it's led to the abuse of children. Yeah, widespread abuse of children. Rampant STDs, what'd you say? Oh, yeah. Yeah, less distinction and appreciation for the biblical roles that God's given us for man and woman as he's created us. They're, they're very blurred in our culture. STDs are, are a, a huge problem. Um, what else? What are some other things? Teen pregnancy, abortions. Abortions are a, a huge problem. What else? Single parent households, absolutely. Yeah, marriage isn't valued the way it should be because if marriage isn't suiting you, 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 you bend that to accommodate what you prefer. And so marriage is not valued the way it's supposed to be. It's, it's, uh, it's much more negotiable than it used to be. What else? Or not even necessary. Or not even necessary, yeah. It's, there's premarital sex, there's extramarital sex, um, when it comes to sexuality, marriage in our culture is not, not completely necessary. What else? Um, 
What are some other things? Yeah, yeah. Children are exposed to a, a number of things, and um, yeah, that, there, there's a number of problems that go with that. What else? Yeah, I'm an overprotective dad with a seven-year-old, and it's like everything's some sequined off-the-shoulder plunging neckline. I'm like, why for a seven-year-old do we need that? And I'm not going to pay $40 for it. So <laughs> we stick with T-shirts and jeans and stuff as best we can, if it's up to me. Um, yeah, there's a number of, of different things. Divorce, remarriage, abortion, premarital sex, extramarital sex, homosexuality is far more of a common thing today than it was even 10 years ago. And, and the hope for those pushing that is that it would be the norm, like just part of married people. Um, addictions to pornography, um, that's, a, that's a pretty massive thing. In 1986, 86, think about what life was like in 1986. In 1986, Americans rented 75 million hardcore pornographic videos in 1986. 75 million hardcore pornographic videos were rented in 1986. Ten years later, in 1996, that number increased from 75 million to 665 million. And that was just the end of the era where people actually would still rent videos. Now it's not even necessary with the internet. And so with the dawn of the internet, pornography spreads like wildfire. And in 2012, in America alone, the business of porn estimated to bring an annual revenue of over $14 billion. Billion with a B. $14 billion. And um, I was actually reading an article yesterday that talked about how um, this year the porn industry is struggling because there's so much free stuff out there that no one wants to buy it. So isn't that interesting? The, the higher value you put on something, all of a sudden it's devalued because it's, it's everywhere and it's, and it's prevalent. And so these people are writing articles as if they're, they're martyrs because their porn industry is, is um, suffering. Uh, one dirt bag that struck me quite peculiarly, um, he's a, porno, a pornography publisher. He stated in an, inter- in an interview, this is something he said in an interview recently, like within the last year. I want you all to hear this. I want y'all to just take this statement in. He publishes pornography. He said, The great advantage of capitalism is that greed overrides morality and puritanism. This is a guy whose job is to publish pornography. I'm going to say it again. The great advantage of capitalism is that greed overrides morality and puritanism. He didn't say anything about sex. He's talking about money. He's, he's talking about you know, new norms because of what money can bring. It, it, that, that is a jam-packed statement we could spend the whole evening unpacking. It is so sad, so dismissive, um, and so wicked. So, I share these details simply to illustrate the sad reality of our state in regards to sexuality. We're a mess. Our kids are growing up in, hypersexual, in a hypersexualized world that welcomes horribly unbiblical practices as the norm. I actually remember when I was a kid and I saw um, two women kiss on TV for the first time. And I was a kid. I remember, I think I was maybe 11, 12 years old. And I saw that and I thought, 
what was that? That's, that's something that's completely abnormal. What, what, what just happened? And now you can't hardly go through any of the basic channels, like not even cable channels, but the basic channels. I, I will not sit and channel surf with my kids in the room because I am so unsure about what might come up, and it's all so very hypersexualized. So um, the church uh, isn't looking as different as we should. The church, in general, is not looking as different as we should when it comes to sexuality. So many private sins have led to public disgraces in the church. Um, in the church I grew up in, five music ministers in a row all left for sexual immorality. Five in a row. And then when I reached that point in my life where I felt like the Lord was calling me to worship ministry, <laughs> I was like, well, hold on. Things have not gone so well for these guys. And I mean, we're talking everything from someone engaging someone underage, someone engaging another staff member's wife, someone um, who's now a stripper, male stripper, um, to someone who um, just cheated, made a pass. Five men in a row in the church I grew up in. Their private sins became public disgraces in the church, and it was they they... They contributed to the problem of the church not being as distinct as we should be. Some numbers indicate that the divorce rate among Southern Baptists is actually worse than the population in general. You would think, oh, yeah, the Southern Baptists, at least they're strict. Not, not so much, not so much. So, obviously, divorce is not only caused by sexual perversion. I don't want to allude to that, but I want, to, I want us to see this problem, this state that we're in, and all these different factors. I mean, for every factor you look at, you could probably see 10 things that branch off of it that are negative you know, effects on our, on our society, on our children, on the world. So, in his overview of Song of Solomon, Deverd states that we don't have to do any more than turn on a TV or computer to find this. And, and I like the way he said it, so I want you all to listen carefully. He says, you don't have to go look very hard to find illustrations in which complex moral and spiritual creatures made in God's image for knowing and enjoying him forever are portrayed as nothing more than fleshly instruments for your own momentary pleasure and satisfaction. That's a, that's a very, very good way to capture how flippant we are when we engage such things in that sexual manner. And if you're a person who struggles with pornography, I want you to listen even more closely as I read it again. Those are illustrations in which complex moral and spiritual creatures made in God's image for knowing and enjoying him forever are portrayed as nothing more than fleshly instruments for your own momentary pleasure and satisfaction. I heard someone explain that you know it's easy to think that it's not real if, if it's on TV or something like that. And I heard a, a guy explain, that's someone's daughter. Just remember that. Or that's someone's son. Remember that. And it, it, These aren't just fleshly beings. These are people who were created in the image of God to enjoy him. And if we approach it like that, we'll be far less quick to accept such wickedness in our own lives. As I've taught through the Old Testament, part of me has dreaded the Song of Solomon study. I'd started Genesis like six years ago, and Song of Solomon's always been on the horizon. You know, it's always been like, oh man, someday we're going to get there, and we're going to have to talk about all this uncomfortable stuff, um, knowing that we would be discussing sex and other details that are frankly uncomfortable in a public setting. Very uncomfortable to stand in front of a group and say things that are in this book. 
I wanted to do what our fifth and sixth graders are doing and have an abbreviated PG general study this week and a pizza party next week. That's what I wanted to do. But as I said at the beginning, given what's at stake and given the sexual state of our culture, I have been just very sobered today, even as I've been preparing, um, to see a deep need for God's wisdom. Such assaults and perversities can only be made sense of and righted through the breathed out word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. And remember, when we engage the word, we can be transformed by the renewal of our minds. So there are some who are here that need to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Your view on sexuality is, is wrong, or, it's, or, it's, or it's, the waters are, are muddied for some reason, or maybe you've had a horrible experience. Um, undoubtedly, there's people in this room that have been victims of, of um, sexual wrongdoing towards you, and that can, that can change things and change the way you view sex and things. So there are a number of very sensitive things that are at play when we're talking about this in a setting like this. But I want you all to know that this is God's breathed out word, and we desperately need his wisdom to understand what he intended when he created us as we would live out our lives on earth for his glory. I also wanted to encourage you as we're getting into this is um, if you don't have a study Bible, you need to get a study Bible. For books like this, I mean, this thing, you could read it out loud, probably not real loud, but like kind of whisper or something. Um, All eight chapters would take maybe 20 minutes. But you need to read through books like this and study them on your own. Don't just come here thinking, oh, well, I went to two studies, so I totally get Proverbs or Song of Solomon. I want you all to be studying on your own. That is, that is, that'll actually make this more worthwhile um, when we gather. Um, and so get a study Bible. The ESV study Bible, as I was reading through it, I read through all the ESV study Bible notes, the, the book, and a bunch of other stuff, and I, that I got done with all my study, and I thought, you know what? I could probably just teach that with a study Bible because there's so many good insights that are offered there, and they're it's a study Bible. I mean, it's, you can carry it with you. You can see you don't need necessarily me to study that for you to get it. But maybe if we've studied it together, it'll be more fruitful time as we uh, look at the text. So just a plug for a study Bible there, a brief plug for a study Bible. Um, this topic of sexuality is one that the church has not always handled well. I, I almost want to say ever handled well but I'm sure there are some churches that, that have done this and, and explained this and had a good perspective on this and lived it out well. But in general, the church has not always handled this well. For hundreds of years, I was studying on family ministry this week. I was studying on family ministry in the Middle Ages and the Medieval Ages. And for hundreds of years, the church was so confused about sexuality that they viewed even sex within marriage as dirty. It's just dirty. It's just wrong. And some of them minimized it to such a degree for hundreds of years to where it's, it's dirty and we're sinners and it can't ever be good, it can't ever be pleasurable, it can't ever be clean. And they would almost minimize it all the way down to saying it's only for the purpose of creating babies and that is it. And I mean, I'm talking hundreds of years. We have generations of ancestors that went to churches that their view was even within the bounds of marriage, sex was very, very, very dirty. So there is this imbalance that exists among Christians to overreact in one of two ways, and I want us to consider them as we look at the text. First, we can just be like our culture. A lot of the church has actually adopted this to where we will speak of morality as a prison that we need to be freed from, and we'll just give in to these sexual desires, because the reality is the sexual desires are there. So what are you going to do with them? The sexual desires are there. What are you going to do with them? Um, You can either give in, or the other extreme would be 
um, just denying the urges and, and hope for the best. And I haven't seen anybody take either of those approaches that worked out very well at all. So I think the Song of Solomon, or Song of Songs, depending on what version of the Bible you have, presents a balanced way that informs sexuality and erotic love. That's not a phrase I thought I'd use in a Bible study, erotic love. But I feel like Song of Solomon presents this balanced way that informs sexuality and erotic love and where such things are acceptable in God's sight. How does that fit into God's plan for us to fill the earth with his glory? How does this work? So as, as we take a look at a few verses, I want you to know that this is not a book about how to fix your marriage. Song of Solomon is not a book about how to fix your marriage. A lot of times men, in particularly, um, in particular, think um, uh, our marriage will be better if we have more sex. So Song of Solomon is the sex book. So if we read Song of Solomon then our marriage will be better. I'm just saying maybe some dudes think like that, maybe. Where it's like, all right, cool. We're studying Song of Solomon this week, and everyone's all fired up. But I want you to know it's not a book about how to fix your marriage. There is much that this book does not cover in terms of a healthy marriage. This book has nothing to say about growing old together, about job loss, about trials, about raising children. It says nothing about any of that. So it's not a book about how to fix your marriage. It is a book that informs us pretty specifically about sexuality within the confines of marriage. Also, while this book is certainly about sex, it's not only about sex. There's other things, believe it or not, there's other things in Song of Solomon that are not about sex. There are other details about this healthy relationship that are notable and helpful. So the main characters are a shepherdess and a shepherd, who we will meet in a few minutes. A shepherdess and a shepherd are the main characters. And then there are some others that are literally just called others in the book. And then Solomon makes an appearance, um, and we'll talk about that in a, in a minute, on what that is and, and how that is. Um, but uh, the basic structure of this book is love poetry between the shepherd and the shepherdess. You all hear that? The basic structure of this book is love poetry between the shepherd and the shepherdess. So let's begin by reading chapter 1 right out, out loud. Here we go. Y'all ready? Chapter 1. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Now just to stop real briefly, the Song of Songs, think of it as like King of Kings or Prince of Princes. Or, you know, like it, They're saying this is the ultimate of songs, and um, it's called Solomon's. I believe after studying that it was probably uh, written to or for Solomon. I don't think Solomon wrote it about himself. Um, and if you disagree, that's totally cool, because there's like eight other views that you could take as well. But I'll explain why I believe that. But I certainly believe that um, it was written to Solomon as a book of wisdom literature. I'm sure there was involvement by Solomon in it, but I don't think he's the shepherd that we're talking about here, because he was a king. We'll get to that in a minute. I don't want to be too confusing. So chapter 1, verse 2. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out, therefore virgins, virgins love you. Draw me after you, let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will exult and rejoice in you, and we will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. Now you see where it says she, you see where it says others. The others seem to be a group that are really more involved in communicating with she rather than he. 
And, and it seems like just they're, they're, think of them as peers, their friends, those who are encouraging their relationship as they're walking forward. And then she says in verse 5, I'm very dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem. Like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me, and they made me the keeper of the vineyards. But my own vineyard I have not kept. Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon. For why should I be like the one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? So, what we see here is a shepherdess. And what she says is, um, I have had to work hard in the field. And so I've taken better care of the flock than I have even of myself because of the position that I've been put in. But she has her eye on this man. And she's saying to him, where are you keeping your flocks? I want to come and see you. And why should I hang out with everyone else when I long to come to you? And so there's this, this shepherdess, and she, wants, she, she is um, confessing her love for this man. And then... Um, we hear from the man in verse 8. It says, If you do not know, O most beautiful among women, follow in the tracks of the flock. He's playing hard to get. It's kind of being a little playful answer here. He's like, Oh, you don't know? Just follow the tracks to my flock. It's very, very heated here. Um, uh, o most beautiful among women, follow in the tracks of the flock and, and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tents. I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels, and then the others say, we will make for you ornaments of gold studded with silver. And she says, while the king was on his couch, my nard gave forth its fragrance. My beloved is, is to me a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. I mean, we hear this all the time, don't we? <laughs> Verse 15, behold, he says, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. And she says, Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved, truly delightful. Our couch is green, the beams of our house are cedar, and our rafters are pine. <laughs> there you have it. That's, they're getting all fired up here. The house is green, the rafters are pine, the couch is green. They're just expressing their love for one another. And they're doing it in terms that are very different for us. When we start looking at how... He talks to her. He starts telling her like she has goat teeth and, and horse hair and all this stuff. And, and we'll get to it. It's a little weird to us because we are so visual. And I, I, think that, I think it's an interesting thing because in our culture, we're so visual sexually where it's like, well, goat's teeth aren't hot. Like, why would you say that? And, and we have this view where it's like any, anything that he says about her appearance must be all visual. But what we don't realize is, is he's talking about things that are, have like staying power and things that are noble and prestigious and things that are notable and, and worthy of, of, of grandeur. And he's talking about things that last and things that, um, that everyone would look upon and be like, wow, look at that. And so he's not just saying, you're hot. He's, he's saying more of a complex encouragement to her about, um, about her appearance he talks about her appearance as something that is prestigious and, and lasting. And so it's, it's a little bit different for us because we don't usually talk like that. Let's go on in verse, uh, chapter 2. I'm a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. He says, as a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young women. She says, 
As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting table, and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. His left hand is under my head, his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. The voice of my beloved, behold, he comes, leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice. My beloved, that's a creepy if, if in our set, setting, but not here. Um, looking through the lattice, <laughs> my beloved speaks and says to me, arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. For, you can hear like Nora Jones, come away with me. That's what you're hearing right now as, as, as things, are, things are developing. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. For behold, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth, the time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens its figs, the vines are in blossom, they give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. O oh, my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face, let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. My beloved is mine and I am his. He grazes among the lilies until the day breathes in the shadow flees. Turn, my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag on cleft mountains. So what we have is two lovers, a shepherd and a shepherdess, expressing their, their love for one another and expressing how much they want to be with one another. There's certainly an anticipation here. We could go through all these things in chapter 2 and there are a number of uh, metaphorical details and what does it mean for the voice of the turtle dove, all these things. We could go through that. We're not going to go through all of that, but they're all insinuating the readiness to be together. They want one another. They really want to be together. So um, the structure of this book, I'm not going to read the whole thing, although we, we have plenty of time. It's, it doesn't take a long time to read it, and I would encourage you to go do that. The structure of this book is this, this um, uh, one and two are these expressions of love between the lovers, and then in chapter 3, you can see in your subtitle there, it says, The Bride's Dream. And what it, what it says there is, she says, On my bed, by night, I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. And so that's the beginning of a dream in, in, in Song of Solomon. And th- there are interpretations that I'm going to address in a few minutes that, that would disagree on where the dream begins and where the dream ends and who this is. But I believe that chapter 3... Um, verse chapter through chapter six, verse three. Um, I believe that they're a dream that the shepherdess is having in anticipation of being with her husband. So what's being written here is this dream that this shepherdess she lays down in her bed, she goes to sleep, she's thinking about this shepherd who she wants to be with. They're going to be married. She is anticipating that time, and this is a dream. And what we find through the dream sequence is all of these things about. Obviously, her longing, her anticipation, almost sort of a fantasizing about her lover and wanting to be with him. But then there's also these fears. There's a point in chapter 5 where she goes through and the watchmen of the city um, hit her and hurt her. And it's like, well, what is going on there? Where did that come from? But it, it shows how in our dreams, a lot of times those feelings that are deep come out. And one of the fears would be the safety that she would not have outside of the marriage or outside of his protection. And so when she talks about the watchmen that could hurt her, hurt her, she's talking about desiring to be under his protection. And it's this long dream sequence um, for three chapters and three verses. 
um, 3, 4, 5, and 6, 3. Um, and then the, the rest of the book is wedding and consummation. They meet in a garden. Um, I believe that to be the wedding. And then there are some pretty clear details in 7 and 8 that that is consummation. So, even in our oversexed culture, such text can be surprising. As you read through this, it's like, oh, that, that's a little, little racy, a little racy. But um, it's interesting that it's kind of had this um, surprising uh, frankness about it um, in, in most cultures. It, it was traditional among ancient Israelites not to allow young men to read the book until age 30. <laughs> I read that this week. I didn't know that. I'm going to say that again. It was traditional among ancient Israelites not to allow young men to read the book until age 30. Like I almost want if people to raise their hands if they're not 30. Just think you wouldn't be able to read that. It's too, you just catch fire right there if you read it before you're 30. Um, so there was always caution given to this book. Um, that's why we're not just going to study the whole thing in detail with fifth and sixth graders because you have to have caution here as you're talking through some of these things. And the discomfort of some of its content has led many, I mean, some of what I just read could be very uncomfortable, especially in a culture that's not uber-sexualized like we are. And so um, it's interesting because uh, the discomfort of some of the content has led many to try to explain it in a way that is not sexual at all. There are a handful of different approaches to this text that make it like not sexual at all, which is completely bizarre if you just sit down and read the book. It's a very sexual book. But these approaches, because of the discomfort of it, they're like, uh, let's make it not sexual at all. So one of those is the allegorical approach, where it's a hidden meaning, saying that these aren't actually real people, but it's a literary device that's sort of metaphorical in its nature, that you could look at them and learn something about something else, but it's not sexual. That's the main thing. Or the typological approach which is that the symbol, uh, it's symbolic with characters who are just types, and what they are saying in that approach, and sometimes people kind of combine the allegorical and the typological approach, and they're just saying, look, quit being perverted. This is just about Jesus and the church. I, there's no way this is just about Jesus and the church. It's certainly about Jesus and the church to some extent, but when you get to the verses about climbing the tree and laying hold of its fruit and all of these details that are quite sexual in nature... There's no way to explain it by saying, oh, it's just about Jesus and the church. Because it's a sexual thing between two married people. And it's actually quite beautiful. And I don't think we need to explain it away. Another approach is drama, where they just say it's not meant to be seen as actual people, just a drama, and we read it and we learn from it. But these, you know, the Bible would never speak of real people in such frank terms. And then the fourth, which is our approach, as you may have caught on tonight, is just a collection of love poems. That, I think that's the most sober clear way to approach it. I think this is a collection of love poems. Human love poems. Like real people. There's so much detail about the body and the act that to say that it's not real people, it seems a bit bizarre to me if you just read through the text. So we're, we're looking at it as a collection of love poems and by considering it as love poetry, the lovers are lovers and desire is desire. I believe that Song of Solomon explains how intimacy in marriage meets the sexual needs and the longings and the desires that God actually created us with. When we say, okay, we got these sexual desires, what are we going to do? Are we going to just give in to them? Or are we going to just act like they're not there? And I think that if, if our creator created us with sexual desires, not, not from the get-go, obviously, a lot of it when you're in teenage years, whatever, I'm not, I don't have to explain that to you all, but it gets worse. Um, and these sexual desires are there. So I think that God has given us these longings and these needs. And I think that Song of Solomon does a great job of explaining um, 
what we do with that. How do we move there? And so for the sake of structure, this week we're going to look at two and next week we'll look at two. Um, but we're going to look f- at four different types of longings that are presented in this book. We've looked at some of the text, we've considered some of the different perspectives, and now we're going to look particularly for the sake of structure at these longings that are in the book. And again, I want you to know, it's not just sex. It's not just a longing for physical intimacy, but that is the first one. So we're going to start with the first one, which is the longing for physical intimacy. If it has not been obvious, as I read through chapter 1 and chapter 2 out loud, um, there is a longing for physical intimacy that is very obvious in this book. The longing is a good longing. These aren't evil sinners that that we just should look at and never be like them at all. And in fact, the physical longing that they have is good and it's healthy within the bounds of marriage. And it obviously has many levels. What I want us to see when we talk about this sort of physical intimacy longing, uh, that doesn't just mean sex. I mean, you can have a a desire for a physical intimacy with, with a handshake or with a hug. It doesn't have to be some, you don't have to pervert the thing to make it all sexual all the time. But what I think we see when it comes to this physical intimacy that we long for scripturally is it, it goes from things that are very, very, very innocent to things that only belong in a marriage, only. And so um, the author of Song of Solomon definitely has in view the sexual relationship between a husband and a wife. And this is good to remember as a church because as I mentioned earlier, and even as we started our study talking about the negative effects that our over-sexualized culture has, Our message in regard to sex is not resoundingly negative. It is, in fact, very positive. God intends that our longing for physical intimacy be met. So our creator created us with a longing for physical intimacy, and he's created a way in his design for it to be met. So I want us to look at a few different things that will help shape what I would call the Christian view of sex and looking at what does this book say about physical intimacy. Intimacy, and I want you to look at one, two, which I've already read. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. There is a longing there that is reiterated in 4.10. Turn over to 4.10. This is Solomon admiring his bride's beauty in 4.10. And he says, How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice? Your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. I mean, th- I mean he is, he's, he's comparing her to Lebanon, which is a big deal. But what I want us to see here is, is, is keying on the word delight. Physical intimacy, physical love in the book of Song of Solomon is delightful. It's delightful. It's not wicked, not dirty, not horrible. The physical love that we're talking about here between the shepherd and the shepherdess is delightful. Look at 1, 15 through 16. I've already read this. But when um, he says, and then she says, he says in 15, Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved. Or no, he says, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful, your eyes are doves. Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved. Truly delightful, our couch is green. Um, I just want you to see without having to read a hundred different verses uh, that physical beauty is appreciated. So physical love is delightful and physical beauty is appreciated. If, if you look at your wife or you look at your husband and you like what you see, that doesn't make you a bad person. And in fact, 
Um, it should be that way in marriage. The problem is too many people are looking too many other directions to enjoy what's going on in their marriage and to enjoy the hot person that they are married to that is designed by God to be enjoyed by them and vice versa. So this, this, this delight, this physical love is delightful and physical beauty is appreciated. And we should remember that um, as, as spouses, that physical beauty is appreciated. So you should be able to say to your spouse, you are beautiful. Period. And be able to give details about that that are an encouragement to them because physical beauty in Song of Solomon is appreciated. And then finally, look at 4.11. I just read this. Your, lip, your, your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. Um, that's a picture of satisfaction. Physical love is satisfying in the book of Song of Solomon. Satisfaction. So we got this design by a wise God to give us these desires, and then when we look at physical love and physical beauty, we see that they're delightful, they're appreciated, and the physical love is, in fact, satisfying in marriage. And that's a good thing, and that's the way it's supposed to be. So what I want you to do, if you're sitting here saying, whatever, I'm married, and I'm not satisfied, I want you to know that biblically that's the design. We're sinners, we have flaws. We have a number of things that get in the way of sexual enjoyment in our marriages. But what we do as Christians is we say, I'll not let my reality be defined by how I feel. There's something that's really good to live by when we're talking about details like this. And it's, if you feel a certain way, it doesn't mean it's, it is a certain way. Just because you feel a certain way doesn't mean it is a certain way. And so you may say, whatever, that is not true. Physical love is not satisfying in the bounds of marriage. That may be a perspective that you have because of your experience, but what I want you to know is that Scripture says, God in his breathed out wisdom says, I designed it that it should be. And so what, what do Christians do when we see that? Well, we consider our sin, we consider our state, we repent, and we follow Christ, and we do everything we can to say, if I look at this and I say, you know what, physical love is supposed to be satisfying in marriage, but I have no satisfaction, what I need to do as a Christian there is say, I believe God, I believe his design, I believe his promises, and I want to do everything I can to walk in step with his design and not go off and try to figure out my own thing. That's why so many men turn to pornography, and some women turn to pornography. It's not, by the way, that's not just a guy thing. That, there's, that's, a, that's a big problem. And it's like, there's no satisfaction. I'm just going to turn over here. I'm just going to turn over here. And it's a bit of an epidemic. But physical love is supposed to be satisfying within the bounds of marriage. And while that may be a challenge to many, it should be very encouraging. I hope you know that that's what God desires for you in your marriage. Now, there's a repeated warning, too, about physical intimacy in here. You may have heard it already when I read it at the beginning. In 2.7, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles of the does of the field, that you do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. I think sleeping bear is what I think when I see that. Look at 3.5. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles and the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. And then look over in 8.4. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. There's this thing when you're studying the word, if there's something that's repeated, um, you pay attention to it. Um, Howard Hendricks, it's one of his classic sort of Bible study, like this is how you view it. He has a book called Living by the Book. Most of what we do when we study scripture is observation. And he says one of the things you want to observe is repeated things. And here it is a repeated thing that you do not awaken or a stir. You do not stir 
or awaken love until it pleases. Um, the longing and desire need not be awoken before the time is right. And, and this is talking about marriage. This is saying you do not want to go down that road or awaken love, um, these, this physical intimacy, before you're married. It's something that's designed to be wonderful within the bounds of, love, of marriage. And so this warning recurs throughout it, saying don't, don't go there if you're not married. You do not want to go down that road if you're not married because it is at the wrong time to stir up or awaken love. The time is not right, and it, is not, and it, and it in fact will not be pleasing. It will only leave you wanting more, and it will not be pleasing. It will be, in fact, very dissatisfying. So this picture that's being painted here is that we should be modest but not ashamed. When it comes to physical intimacy in marriage, we should be modest but not ashamed. How we talk about it, we should be modest but not ashamed. I was just thinking, in light of that, in light of physical love is delightful, physical beauty is appreciated, physical love is satisfying, but you need not awaken it before the time is right, how should that affect our parenting? Guard what comes into your home. Yeah. Guard what comes into your home. What are some other things we can do in our parenting? Yeah. Yeah. Model respect. Don't speak of it just in dirty terms. Don't just, a lot of times we think that, you know, I just want it quiet no matter what, and so you just let them watch TV. Don't just let them watch anything. The Disney Channel, this, like within the last month, I think, released their first pair of same-sex relationship people on the Disney Channel. Seriously, the Disney Channel. That's where our culture is. So you can't just let them watch whatever and assume that it's innocent because by scriptural standards, we have to make sure that that is not awakened before the time is right. And for children who are watching a show as entertainment, the time is not right. You do, we do not want to expose our children to such things. Um, next week, we're going to talk about the longing for relational intimacy and um, establishing identity and also the longing for meaning. And... If y'all are here this week, I really want you to come back next week because we've talked about the sex part of it, but I want you to know that there's more to it. And um, I was really hoping to get to this relational intimacy, but I don't want to have to rush it. And so, um, in short, um, we're going to learn how we should talk to our spouses, and we're going to learn about encouragement in marriage, and we're going to learn even about anticipation in marriage um, next week. And we're also going to consider establishing identity, how... If two are made one, that changes your identity, and you learn something new about yourself. And we're going to talk about that. And we're also going to talk about meaning and how there are some pretty deep and profound thoughts that some pretty smart guys have had about um, finding meaning in marriage and, and how you can learn about 
it's, I don't believe it's all be allegorical or metaphorical or typological, but I do believe when you take into account in Ephesians 5 that says your marriage should, should represent Christ in the church, that in all these details of marriage, we can certainly learn about our relationship with God. And so we'll talk more about that next week. So I encourage you all to come back. I encourage you also to read through this book this week. Just sit and read through it. And if you have a study Bible, do it with your study Bible because it, it, there's so many details that are, you, you can, oh man, I didn't even think about that. But yeah, that makes sense. It's just language that's very unfamiliar to us. So I encourage y'all, take it serious. Um, this is a Bible study. Um, so we all study. And then we open our Bibles and consider things when we gather. So uh, let me pray and then we'll be done. Lord, I'm thankful uh, that you have given us wisdom through your word uh, in an area where it is so desperately needed. And what my hope is tonight is that we would be transformed by the renewal of our minds, that we would be changed, that we would set our minds on the things above, that we would set our minds on the will of God. Um, Because when it comes to sexuality, um, our minds can go to a lot of really dark places And there's a lot of people here who have had really bad experiences. And so my hope, Lord, is that in studying these things, we would see your will and that we would be encouraged and that those who have been wronged or victimized or um, any number of really nightmarish things, uh, I pray that they would be able to see through that pain to see that you actually do have a design that is wonderful and that redemption and renewal does exist in Christ. I also pray, Lord, for those who struggle with a very wrong view of sexuality, um, lust, um, addictions to pornography, uh, inappropriate expectations for their spouse, um, any any number of different things and perversities that we could find ourselves in. My prayer tonight is that as we look at your word and we allow the spirit to move, that we would in fact see things the way that you see them and repent where we need to repent. I pray for healing in the area of sexuality for those who are here. I pray for very real healing. We know that that involves confession and it involves repentance from what you tell us in your word. And so um, I pray for a real honest um, approach to such text and I pray for a very humble approach to such text so that we would... Um, Be eager to be um, walking in your will and not our own. Uh, We thank you for being a very good God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. See you all next week.